You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series on 1 Samuel, presented by Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Today we're going to talk about God's judgment, which is always a very fun topic. And, um, but before we do that, I, I want to I go back a little bit into our series on Set Apart, on our, on our series in 1 Samuel. So previously in 1 Samuel, here's what you've missed. We remember that we had Eli. And Eli was the high priest in the temple, right? And Eli had two sons, and his two sons were Phinehas and Hophni. And both of them were very wicked. And they did awful things, and they desecrated uh, God's temple and God's holy things. And um, they acted in, with licentious behavior. And they were just two awful people. And Eli spoke to them at times and urged them not to do this. But they did it anyways, and they continued in this. And then at the same time, we, we read of a woman named Hannah. And Hannah was barren, and she prayed for a child, and she says, Lord, if you give me this child, I'll give him to you. And as Steve pointed out, what Hannah was doing was sort of choosing Samuel's vocation. Yes, he was being dedicated, but more than that, he was going to go into, pre- into basically priestly service for the Lord. And so Hannah brings Samuel to Eli, and Eli raised him and probably potty trained him and all that stuff as well. But we also read something interesting, that Samuel did not know the Lord. And it was during a time in which the word of the Lord was rare, where there weren't very many visions or anything like that. So even though Samuel grew up in the temple, even though he was always around the holy things of God, even though he spent his nights lighting the menorahs and and performing sacrifices by Eli's side, he didn't really know who God was. And that might show us a little bit about what that temple was like, or that era was like in Israel's history. And of course, the famous moment is that moment where, where God calls Samuel and shows up to him, And Samuel doesn't even have a clue, doesn't realize that it's God until Eli clues him in that maybe this is God calling you. Listen to what he has to say. But the message that God brings to Samuel, this is the part we often forget, that the message that God brings to Samuel is a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment against Israel and against Eli and against Eli's sons. So you often think, we often think that when we, you know, I I grew up thinking that Eli was a good guy and and as I'm reading this passage, I'm thinking, as I'm studying from 1 Samuel, and this always seems to happen that the more I, I, I read the Word of God, the more things just pop out. And I think Steve and Carl have really done an awesome job at presenting the story and filling us in on things that, we've often, uh, that we often forget about and things that kind of are hidden under the surface. That here Eli was allowing his two sons to serve in the temple when they had no business serving in the temple and all of these other things that are going on. And Hannah bringing her son to the temple, even though this is the type of place that it has become, a place where wickedness has, um, has been thriving. And, and she, maybe she felt like she was giving him to the wolves. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We'll read this in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, what was Samuel's word? Samuel's word was the word that God had spoken to him about the upcoming judgment that was upon Israel. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. And the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. 
And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into this camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Now that happened hundreds of years before. And there's still this reputation there. Isn't that interesting? Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. God, this morning we come to you with a heavy passage, and we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word and to apply your word, to understand what, what you have for us. So, God, here we are. We're here. We're ready. We're listening to you. We ask, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Growing up, I was a huge baseball fan. Loved to play baseball. And I did pretty well up until the point we got to kid pitch. I had two things really working against me. Number one, I had terrible eyesight, and I didn't really know it, and I didn't wear glasses. And number two, I was afraid of the ball. So between, <laughs> so between um, not being able to see the ball and then flinching when the ball came, I was a terrible hitter. I had a great on-base percentage because I either walked or struck out, but I was O for the century. I never hit the ball. And one day, it was a Saturday afternoon, I had a Saturday afternoon game, and so we went to church on Saturday morning, and I rushed, uh, we rushed out as soon as amen was said. I got changed in the car. I remember we stopped at Popeye's that day and had some chicken. And, and, I, and I got there for the first pitch, and I'm batting, and, um, the, and the pitch comes, and I swung, and I hit the ball. Now, I have no idea where the ball went because I was flinching, but <laughs> I, I hit the ball, and I ran. And I remember as I was running first, Mom, do you remember where the ball went? Did it go... <laughs> I hit the ball, and I remember as I was running, rounding first, I think my coach said, go to third, go to third. And so I ran through second, and my third base coach is waving me to third, and as I get to third, he's like, slide, slide, and I slid, and I was safe. My first hit of the season was a triple, like the hardest hit in baseball, right? So the second at-bat comes up, and I would have loved to know where that ball went, but the second at-bat comes up, and I hit it again. And it went into outfield. I got, a, I got a single. I was two for two. My batting averages was like .025 now or something like that. <laughs> but this was exciting. There was a page that was turning. My third at bat, I swung and I hit the ball and I grounded out to second. But I didn't care because I was three for three with contact, even though it was two for three. I mean, 
I got the game ball that day. It was the only time I ever got the game ball. And the kid, after, you know, when I, my peers pitched to me, and I ended up playing in high school, and I, I did a little better, but still, uh, I struggled at hitting. But I'll tell you what, the next day, or the next game, guess which socks I was wearing, right? I was wearing those same socks, and every time we had a chance to eat dinner before the game, I'm like, let's go to Popeye's. We're going to go to Popeye's, right? <laughs> I, I was convinced that there was something that in my routine that day that would help me be a, a successful baseball player and turn the page, so to speak, in my baseball career, as short-lived as it was. But, but sports players are superstitious, aren't they? We are the most superstitious people in the world. And we wear our gloves on our heads or our rally caps, I think as Steve pointed out, or people wear the same socks, or it's playoff season, the caps are in the playoff, I'm not washing my jersey, right? And, and we've got to, grow the, got to grow the playoff beard. That's right. That's right. So we've got, we got to do that. I expect you'll be working. Oh, you're working on yours. Okay, nice. <laughs> this is, I mean, we are just super superstitious people, especially when it comes to sports. One of my favorite quotes is by Babe Ruth, who said, I only have one superstition. Whenever I hit a home run, I make sure to, t- to touch all four bases. <laughs> Out of all the things people say about Christianity, I'm okay with certain things. When they say, things, you know, it's, it's religion or it's a myth, you know, I get over that. But the one thing I don't like is when they call it superstition. When, you're, when they say, you re, they refer to your faith as superstitious. When I was living in southern Spain, uh, there's a heavy gypsy population in southern Spain. And um, what the gypsies would do is that a lot of them would stand outside of the cathedrals and they would have rosemary in their hand. And as you walk by, and particularly they would, they would spot tourists, because they're easy to spot, and, and, they would, um, and they would approach them, and they would say a gift, or un regalo, un regalito. You know, and they try to give you this gift. And it's this rosemary, and a lot of people just think, oh, what a nice gesture, they're giving me a, a plant. Nice, you know, I'll take it. And, but as you take it, they follow you with their hand out like this. Like money, money money, dinero, dinero, money, 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 right? And you're like, oh, I think we have a different understanding of what gift means here, right? Um, but they'll follow you, and a lot of times then the person tries to give it back, and it's this big hoop de da whatever. And, um, but I do remember one time, um, so you, we always, you know, said no thank you, and you kept going. But I remember one time my house mother, who was Roman Catholic, came home with a piece of rosemary that she had gotten probably near one of the churches or cathedrals. And she said, and she said, uh, and she gave it to us boys that were living there, and she said, para suerte, for luck, right? For luck. This will bring you good luck if you have it. You know, I think sometimes we are critical of certain faiths because we see them as superstitious. And that's generally what we do. But lest, uh, lest we think that we are holier than now, I think sometimes we act superstitiously towards the things of God as well. I mean, think about it. Have you ever said, have you ever said, I should give money, I should tithe, because if I don't, maybe God's going to take away my job. Maybe you woke up on a Sunday morning, you're awfully groggy, and you think, if I, I know I should go to church, because if I don't, maybe something bad is going to happen to me this week, right? We often think that way. It's hard not to. We're kind of, we're humans. Or, or maybe in a worship service, we had a great experience, and we think, if I only can do that again, maybe I'll wear my lucky shirt, because I had a great experience 
with God when I wore this shirt or when the music played a certain way with I had a better experience. We can be superstitious. The Catechism of the Catholic Church has a great statement about superstition. It says this, superstition is a deviation of religious feeling and of the practices this feeling imposes. It can even affect the worship we offer the true God. When one attributes an importance in some way magical to certain practices otherwise lawful or necessary, to attribute the efficacy of prayers or sacramental signs to their mere external performance, apart from the interior dispositions that they demand, is to fall into superstition. Now, that's a lot of words. But really, the words come down to this. Superstition is the opposite of devotion. Superstition is the opposite of devotion. Why? Because superstition is the focus of an external action to produce a supernatural result. If I do this, I will get this. Devotion is an action resulting from interior motives of the heart. We're going to look at that today. And we say, well, why, why, are we, why are we looking at this? Because there's a lot of this that we see in 1 Samuel 4 about the culture that was going on and about the practices that were happening in the temple. We see in chapter 4, they ask, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Now, there's a lot of parallels between this these chapters and the story of Joshua. Remember in the story of Joshua, there was that scene where they defeated Jericho. And God had told them, don't take anything in Jericho. But there was a man named Achan who took a few things, and he hid them. And so the next battle, they fight Ai, and they lose. And people lost their lives. And Joshua's beside himself, and he gets before the Lord, and he says, Lord, why did you bring us here to embarrass us and embarrass your name and bring defeat? Why did you do this, God? And God says to him, get off your face, Joshua, because there is sin in your camp, and you need to go and find that sin. So in the same way, here's Israel. Here they are again. They think, you know what? We have done the right things. We are the right people. We're God's chosen people. Of course he wants us to beat the Philistines. We're going to go in there. We're going to fight, and we're going to win because we've done the right things. We've crossed our T's and dotted our I's and and they, and, and they don't even consult God. God, why did we lose this battle? So they came up with a, with a solution. Here's their solution. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. That's worked before for Israel. We've talked a lot about the Ark of the Covenant here. The Ark of the Covenant was powerful. It was holy. It was the most sacred artifact in Israel's possession. The Lord, it says the mercy seat was between the two cherubim. That's where the presence of God was felt. That there was no one supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was carried by poles, by Levites only. And only one person, and it sat in the Holy of Holies, and only one person could go into the Holy, Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest, and that was once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there were certain procedures that he had to follow, and it was, a, it was, just, it was a very intense, intense moment and intense presence. And when Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them, and we read about that in the stories of Moses and of Joshua, that they won. There was power there. But there was also devotion there. And what Israel had forgotten, what Israel had neglected, was they thought they could go into war with the Ark of the Covenant, and they would automatically win. As long as we have that. 
as long as we have our lucky socks on, we're going to win. In Isaiah chapter 1, we read this. The multitude of your sacrifices. Now listen to this. This is pretty tough. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Take a look at this. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please plead the case of the widow. We read in Psalm, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. In Psalm 51, you do not delight in sacrifices, or I bring them to you. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You will not despise. You see the difference here, as David's pointing out, the difference between, between going through the motions and having a devotion for God. In Hosea 6, we read something similar. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. This is what the Lord wanted. He wanted their hearts, not just their actions. He wanted their hearts. You might say, well, God, didn't you, you're telling me you don't, you don't like the new moons and the Sabbaths and these burnt offerings and these sacrifices. You're saying all of these things that you've prescribed over time that you've put about in your law, are you saying that you don't want these anymore? And God would say, no, that's not what I'm saying. That these, these are important. These are things that I desire. But more than that, I desire your heart. These things would come if your heart was with me, but I don't want the actions apart from your devotion. Let's keep reading in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we'll we'll continue with verse 12. That same day a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. And when the man entered the town and told, uh, and told them what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What's the meaning of this uproar? And the man hurried over, hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes had failed him, so he could not see. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man, and he was heavy, and he had led Israel for forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant near the time of delivery. 
And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So a really awful scene to end Eli's life. His, the Israel, 30-something thousand men are killed. His sons, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, are also killed in battle. And then Eli dies. And then his daughter-in-law dies. And it's just this real sad moment, this real depressing moment in Israel's history. And as I thought about this passage, I began by saying, wow, you know, it seems like these people here, as maybe dysfunctional as things were, they had an appreciation for the holiness of God and the presence of God and the power of God. I mean, they, they get the sense that when the ark of God has departed, the glory is gone. And as I thought about it, I thought, no, that's really shallow. I think they had it all wrong. I think Eli had it all wrong. What do I mean by that? I mean to say that the glory of God, yes, the Ark of the Covenant represents the glory of God. But it was like they were limiting God to a box. That as long as they had this box, the glory of God was there. As long as they had this box, uh, God was present with them and everything was okay. But as soon as that box is gone, now the glory is gone? I don't think so. The glory of God thrives in devotion. So what we see is that complacency thrives in superstition. That as long as I have this and I do that and this and that, I'm good to go. And we see what it, what it, what it, uh, what it nurtured was an attitude of complacency. Everyone was complacent about who God was. Complacency thrives in superstition and mere tradition. We'll just do this and that and this and it'll be okay. But the glory of God, the glory of God thrives in true devotion. So, I mean, uh, compare this scene with uh, the Ark of the Covenant leaving Israel and with everyone depressed and sad and saying the glory of the Lord has departed. And look at David. As the Ark of the Covenant enters Jerusalem, he's dancing in the streets. He is excited about the presence of God, but His excitement isn't about the ark, it's about who God is. Because God is bigger than this box. You know, and I I thought about David's life more and more in in studying this message. But it's no wonder how David, why God said, David has a heart after me. You know, and sometimes we, we, we limit David and we think of David, we think of his adultery with Bathsheba. And certainly that, that was a terrible sin. But his heart was broken because of that. He... His child dies because of that sin. And he, and he looks at this and he says, you know, whatever it is, that God is using this judgment to bring about my heart back to him. David had this understanding about the devotion of God that, and it's no wonder he writes in Psalm 40 and Psalm 51, sacrifices and burnt offerings you not desire, but a broken and contrite heart you will not deny. You will not deny my devotion to you. But Israel had this understanding, and, what, and part of the superstition was that Israel believed that as long as they had the Ark of the Covenant, they would win. And if they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, whoever else had it would win, right? 
And, and, and doesn't it sound like Joshua? Remember in Joshua, before the Battle of Jericho, there comes a, the captain of the Lord's army. The Lord himself appears as a general. And he says, what does he say? He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Right? Tell me which side you're on. And God says, neither. That's a brilliant statement. I'm neither for you or I'm, and I'm not for your enemies. The question is, Joshua, are you for me? Are you with me? Right? So, so God is not taking sides here. He's not, well, as long as you have the Ark of the Covenant, I'm on your side. But if they have the Ark of the Covenant, I've got to go with them, right? We're limiting God to this box. And, and God, that's not how it works. And take a look at 1 Samuel 5. This is, this is just a brilliant passage. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, read about this. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon, and bad things are about to happen. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and put him back into his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. I think after that, I would not go back into that temple. I don't know. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and inflicted them with tumors. And when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel removed to Philadelphia. I mean, Gath. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after that, they had, they had moved it. The Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He inflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So then they sent the ark of God to Pittsburgh. I mean, Ekron, right? At the ark, as the ark of God, this is great. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, no, wait a second. <laughs> They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around uh, to us to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So certainly there was this uh, there was this, this power in the Ark of God, and it, and it represented a lot about God, and the mercy seat was there, and I mean, it was just a very powerful artifact. But God proves, God proves that he is not limited to one side or the other. God is going to do his own thing, and he's going to bring judgment on who he wants to bring judgment, and he's going to bring mercy on whom he wants to bring mercy. And... And the passage is great because here's Israel. They're, they're, they're falling all over themselves because the ark of God has left. And Philistines have it, and they can't get rid of it fast enough. They're treating it like hot potato. And they're just passing it from one city to the other, and it's causing all sorts of havoc and panic. And bad things are happening. People are dying. There's tumors. Uh, everything is going wrong. And again, do you see the similarity between the way the Philistines treated the ark and the way Israel treated the ark? It was all about the ark. The Philistines had an, an amazing opportunity here. 
Here was God revealing himself to them in a way that they had never experienced. They could have said, you know what, we've, we've served Dagon for a long time, and nothing real like this has ever happened. But they didn't say that. They said, get the ark out of here. They had an opportunity to say, you know what, God, you're obviously real. And you're real in a way that I, we have never experienced before. Let's get to know who this God is, and let's ask him what he wants from us. In each moment of judgment, in Israel's judgment, where they lost the battle, where the Philistines lost the battle here, there was this moment where they could have reached out to God and said, God, like Joshua did, God, what's going on? And why is this happening? But instead, Israel returned to superstitious activity. And Philistines said, I want, I want nothing to do with this God. We all face the judgment of God in different ways. And we all face tragedy in our world. And, and you know, we can think of people who have said, what's going on? What's going on here? Is, was God there when this massacre happened, or this bombing happened, or this terrorist activity happened? And I think those are the right questions to ask. Where is God? But really, who is God? What is God saying to us? Because all of these opportunities, whether they're the hand of evil or the judgment of God and allowed by God, they're opportunities for devotion, for repentance. The power of the presence and the holiness and the conviction, the judgment of the Lord, they're meant to bring us to devotion. They're not meant just to beat us down. They're meant to bring us to devotion. That's, that was David's point. My heart is broken. The Lord has brought him back to devotion. The, the, when, we talk, when you read about church discipline, and um, when Paul writes about that, the purpose of the church discipline was to bring about repentance. It wasn't to punish someone. It was to bring them to repentance. And in the same sense, when God causes things or allows things to happen, however we want to look at it, these are moments of power and of holiness and conviction judgment, but they're meant to bring about our whole heart, our whole devotion to him. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love him, follow him, to learn from him, to let him lead us and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.